On today's episode, I sit down with industry professional, professor, and entrepreneur Jeremy Gruber. Together, we walk through how the music business has evolved since the early 2000s and how he has managed to forge a successful and lasting career as a digital strategist, working with the likes of John Legend, Charlie Puth, among many, many others. Hope you enjoy. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here to chat on the First Act Podcast. It's really a really great pleasure to have the chance to sit down with you, even though it's virtual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, eventually it'll hopefully be in person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We can grab a beer, we can go to a show. <laughs> so I was digging around and uh, I found that you're also a Jewish kid, but you're from New Jersey, mm-hmm. which yes. you're not really too far away from Montreal. So that means we probably actually had like similar snowstorms or something like that. That's <laughs> probably true. We've probably been in the same snowstorm. Yeah, actually, um, I've been to Montreal once. I was I played at Canadian Music Week um, and with my band. In Toronto, yeah, um, and my, my parents actually drove up for that. So uh, yeah, I've been I've been to Canada a couple times. Cool. And, and on that note, I'm from the New York part of New Jersey. So like, New Jersey is basically a giant suburb of two big cities. I'm from the part of the suburb of New York, and there's a South, South Jersey's all suburbs of Philly. So. Oh, so you essentially grew up in New York then? I grew up in the way north of New Jersey in an area called Bergen County, really close to New York State. Oh, I know Bergen County. My yeah. old boss grew up in Jersey, so I had to like study a map before starting. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I used I used to work at Webster Hall. I used to work with. Oh, cool! Yeah. Did you ever work with um, Webster Hall? Did you work with Heath Miller? Of course. Yeah, that that, that was my yeah. boss from Jersey. Uh, so yeah, so growing up in the late '90s in New Jersey, there was a punk scene, like kind of the third, like second or third wave of hardcore, you know, third wave nineties punk. Heath was one of the producers who put on all the shows. Like he was one of the guys who just put on like from American Legion halls to arcades to clubs. He would, he would be the producer, who, the promoter who put on all the shows. I mean, I think he was maybe 16 when he started doing this. He was probably a, a kid because I think he's only a year or two older than me. And I was going to the shows. I'm 38 now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's, I'm, I'm 36. So it's like, yeah. I was going to the shows he was promoting. Um, and yeah, so I actually never met Heath back then. There was a whole thing. There's a whole scene. There was an early website, NewJerseyMusicScene.com was going. And like, there's there was a whole kind of zine culture and seven inches and, you know, EP, EP compilations, like, like right. CD compilations and, and, and stuff. And, and, he, and he had XSDB. Yes, exactly. XSDB was his thing. So I used to go to those shows when I was a kid, trying to be cool. I met Heath four years ago at South by Southwest. I had never met him before. And then I, we were at the MTV party. My current boss, Ty, at Friends at Work, her husband was the head of music for MTV for about two years. And so he interviewed me for my job at South by. Like He was like, hey, come by. I'll meet you just to kind of like be like an extra. He, he didn't technically work for the company. He was at MTV, but he was like, you know, just vetting me for his wife. And Heath was in the VIP section at the party. And I was like, oh, you're, I recognize your name. Like, I used to go to the shows you put on. Heath, Heath is like an icon in like the Tri-State area. You're a musician, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I started, so I started kind of like as a kid, I really wanted to be in science. Like, I just loved science. I still do. I'm still a big fan of like keeping up on both science and science fiction and, and all that stuff. But um, when I was 14, I 
all my friends, again, back in that kind of, you know, second, third wave punk, ska, New York hardcore scene that was going on in the late 90s, all my friends started playing instruments. And I was, it was kind of this weird thing where I was a little too young for the scene. You know, I was 14 years old, I think in 98 or 99. And so I was kind of a young kid. I wasn't really a punk. I grew up in a nice, you know, upper middle class household. And in, uh, in, in as a, most punks did, believe it or not. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and all my friends started playing instruments. And the other thing that was funny is it was at a time when there was a big blurring of the lines between mainstream and underground. Cause like, you know, bands like Corn would be playing arenas. They'd be an underground band from Bakersfield that would then go on an arena tour without radio support. Like they had one song on like college radio and they could play arenas. And so you'd have these giant shows with rap metal bands because it was like the, the start of the rap metal scene before it died in the early 2000s. Like new metal was just coming up. And as a young kid, you don't hear the difference between System of a Down, Corn. Um, I'm not going to invoke the Limp Bizkit name, but I've seen them. Deftones. And then the like, you know, Warzone and, you know, Earth Crisis and Strife and uh-huh. all yeah. these like legit, you know, hardcore bands. And so you'd go to a show and you'd see, you know, you said you worked with Crush. I mean, I'd go see e- E-Town Concrete, you know, Anthony's band back back then. Um, and like, they still play now. But, you know, you go see E-Town Concrete, that same kid loves a band like, you know, Corn. It's, it's not that far off from each other. So I got really into all of that. Like the late 90s hard rock scene and then like more sophisticated music also, like, you know, Industrial, Nine Inch Nails, KMFDM. And um, I started playing bass because all my friends played guitar. We had one friend who played drums um, and like no one played bass. So I wasn't into a lot of the things that a lot of the kids were into, like smoking pot and stuff like that. I I just didn't want to do that. So I I would sit in the basement you know, while they were all smoking pot and playing, you know, guitars and stuff. And I'd teach myself to play bass. And I played saxophone for eight years because both my parents are music teachers. And so playing an instrument was very important in my family. But it wasn't like serious. Like it wasn't like you had to play it and take it seriously. You just had to learn it as a life enrichment. Yeah, just, just so, like a hobby. Just, just so like exactly. it's something that you can do. Keep exactly. And then bass, I was able to play bass in six months better than I played saxophone after eight years. Yeah. It just kind of, I, I was physically able to play it. So that became serious for me. And so I started. How did, how did you get started learning bass? Was it mostly by ear? Did you get plugs? Did you... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, mostly by ear. There weren't tabs back then, you know? No, you still had online tabs. It was late 90s, so you could go so online. Tabs.net then. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was tough, but they were there. Um, a lot by ear. You know, it was a little of both because I started – so the lead singer and guitarist in my band in high school, you know, his little brother wanted to be like his big brother and wanted to play bass. So, but he never really picked it up. So I just picked up his bass and started playing it. Mm-hmm. And then I would start, you know, with people showing me what to do, play the root notes, play along. And then we discovered, you know, again, total blurring of lines of, you know, the music that's cool versus underground versus mainstream, you know, sublime was just blowing up, you know, the self-titled album come out, Brad had just passed away. And all of a sudden, New Jersey discovered sublime. It was like changed my life, honestly, and learning how to play melodic bass lines along with music, really, I, it just expanded my world a lot. And, right. and Eric Instead Wilson, bass notes of yeah. the chords that people were playing like the same four chords. Exactly. So, right. you know, Eric Wilson's a great melodic bass player. I learned a lot about reggae. And I'm also kind of a nerd. So 
when I learned those things, I then tried to learn everything behind it. You know, when I learned how to play Sublime, I was like, I can hear that's not the thing. You know, you listen to Family Man Barrett and the and um, and Bob Marley and the you know, the Whalers. Like that that rhythm section, the two brothers were that rhythm section, and the the sophistication of that you know, was another level. So I'd sit around learning how to play real reggae. In addition to Sublime, I learned how to play jazz. I started taking private lessons, you know, and, and I went to Berkeley College of Music for the summer program there. So I started taking music very seriously. But when I was like, you know, 18, the Berkeley program put me in my place because this was, this was pre-YouTube. So now if you're a kid learning to play an instrument, you can go on YouTube and you can hear people of any level like on bass you're talking victor wooten and jaco pistorius so you didn't know how good you were relative to everybody else exactly so berkeley was that for me berkeley was like oh i don't know anything and i got a lot better in a summer but i didn't i did not know shit i realized you know i could take everything i had together the my you know passion for playing uh, my passion for music and learn you know, how to survive in the industry. So when it came time to go to university, like actually like go to college, I only applied to two schools. I applied to Berkeley College of Music in Boston and USC for the music industry program. And that was it. Right. Um, I got into USC. I got into both, but I, I, I chose to go to USC for the, for the university education, just to, to be in Los Angeles, to be exposed to general education classes. Um, and also to know, you know, I knew at Berkeley I was a very small fish. So hi, my name's Jeremy, Jeremy Gruber. I am the head of artist marketing and digital strategy for Friends at Work. Uh, Friends at Work is an artist management company primarily, but it's a, it's a music and media company that focuses on managing talent, um, primarily John Legend, Lindsey Sterling, Raphael Sadiq, uh, working with Charlie Puth now some developing acts also, as well as some public speakers. Uh, Neil Katyal, the author, public speaker, and former Solicitor General of the United States. Uh, Katie Coleman is an astronaut and, and public speaker. Social impact is a really big part of what we do. So really making sure that the artists and the people we work with are focused on doing good with their platforms. Job number two, I'm a partner in a music tech startup called Foundy. That's F-O-U-N-D dot E-E, found dot E-E. It's a music marketing technology. It's expanding outside of music also, but it was built for musicians. It's primarily an ad platform, an advertising platform, really built to be a simple way to replace Google AdWords build on platform rich media ads and deploy them. You could buy in-email ads things that you can't buy anywhere else, uh, Spotify audio ads as well. And then there's also free, you know, totally free, totally open account. Anybody listening can go sign up right now for free and you get instant access to a URL shortener with the universal tracking pixel, get data, build audiences. Uh, but we've also launched uh, interest-based targeting, really some of the best targeting, lowest priced advertising you can get. You know, a lot of hobby musicians are coming out with new stuff or established artists can't tour and they're looking for new revenue streams, really focused on ways to support the independent artist. Um, but we also work with uh, some big, uh, big companies like Concord Music Group and uh, CD Baby is a, is a big partner of ours for the indie side. And then my third job, I'm an adjunct professor at USC in the music industry program where I teach a real world music marketing class, uh, kind of brings everything I do together, uh, trying to, you know, share information in case you can't tell I like to talk. So um, it kind of lets me talk for a few hours a week with 10 students and um, it's 10 to 12 students class. And we bring in people from all over the industry to talk to them and develop, you know, new ideas uh, and help 
give help a few, at least a handful of students get a glimpse of what the real music industry is like. Awesome. So that's right on topic of what we're doing over here. So this podcast right there focuses on the hustle behind building a sustainable career in the arts. Uh, mm-hmm. So we chat with tastemakers just like yourself to help newcomers gain industry insights and industry hacks, if you will, on how to get started, grow a career organically, or either as an artist or as somebody working behind the scenes. So, you know, something that we want to talk about are the, the, the different roles that are available in it across mm-hmm. entertainment and uh, creative ways that you can stand out you know, sort of keeping an ear to the ground uh, about any sort of emerging technology or different trends and more. So talking about Foundy is definitely very interesting for our listeners. You know, that's something that, you know, might have flown under the radar if they haven't already heard about that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I think that just just sort of getting into the music business, something that, you know, uh, I found that a lot of people didn't necessarily know about, whereas like the difference between like an agent and a manager and a record label. Huge. Yeah, right? very and, true. And making that distinction is 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 massive, right? Mm-hmm. Because those are three drastically different jobs. Mm-hmm. But, well, you're 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 coming on something that I give everybody advice to. So I mentioned I have a literally a university level education in the music industry. You don't need that. The the main thing. I mean, I was happy to have four years to kind of grow and expand and get experiences and things like that. I'm very fortunate and privileged to have had that experience. But Don Passman wrote the book on this. I mean, everything you need to know about the music business. Yeah, it's you know, and the the thing I tell everybody is the same thing as my university education at USC. The, I went to here's here's an example. This is a little bit of an anecdote that I tell everyone. I, I start every class I teach with this. Every time I'm a guest in a class, I tell this exact same way. So it's, it's the way I introduce myself and how my career has gotten where it is. Um, you know, I went to USC from 2001 to 2005. Now, that of course, that dates, you know, ages me also. But it's, you know, if you think about that era, Napster was sued out of existence in 1999. So Kazaa and LimeWire were still online and piracy was still rampant in 2001 to 2005. iTunes was invented in that range. Facebook was invented. MySpace was the biggest social network. YouTube was was not even purchased by Google yet. Google was invented in 99, but became a verb in the early 2000s. So Google as a ubiquitous tool was everywhere. The MP3 became the music set, like the way people listen to music evolved into the MP3 while I was at university. In 2006, 80% of record retail had gone out of business. Now, if you know anything about a university education system, you'll know that there's an academic process to how they update their curriculum. And there is absolutely no possible way any university in the country could have been teaching the actual industry that I was going to graduate into. It just absolutely. I've been saying couldn't have existed. to yeah. every person that wants, any newcomer that wants to enter into the industry, mm-hmm. any of my interns, I was explaining this to them like while they're in school. I'm like, you know, whatever you're studying right now, don't study music business. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make one argument for the music business program. And that is okay. what you were saying earlier. I'm going to make one argument. It's learning the language of the industry and the value of understanding that language is super important. And it, it is one of the things that I think set me apart as I was developing my career is the fact that my, my career has been singular and focused from university through today. And my language has remained sharp. I know those differences, not only between a manager, record label, and agent, which are relatively simple concepts, but advanced outside of the world. I can't tell you how often 
people refer to me as an agent because I work at a management company. Um, and that's incorrect. But also knowing how publishing work, I will tell you within the last three years, there was at least a time when a professional at a management company thought that a $15,000 aside license for a sink was a $15,000 total fee. And that's incorrect. You're going to cut your budget in half. If you go to your partner and say, it's $15,000 aside, you need $15,000 because aside means most favored nations, publishing and master use. Right. So it's $30,000. We almost screwed a major A-list client with that. Like you have to be really careful with that information and you have to know that language. And that's the kind of stuff that you can learn from books, universities, but it's a dedicated research. You need to understand that. And I will tell you, publishing especially is the most challenging part of almost any industry. I know we've been focusing a lot how COVID-19 has been impacting our, our work schedules. Everyone's working from home. You know, I'm just curious to hear from your perspective. Is there anybody that you've been listening to or that you, that you find has been standing out in this time and creating relevant content? I think all artists so far, everybody had the same idea at the same time. And that idea was, let's go live. Let's, let's go live stream. You know, Instagram Live became the biggest distribution platform in the world. And we did an Instagram Live with John Legend, um, sponsored by Global Citizen in the first 48 hours of, before it was even the law, when it was just suggested lockdown. Yeah. Um, but within, you know, by the Tuesday of the full lockdown, John was online playing to 120,000 people. John got a ton of press. Uh, I really think that he nailed it. I mean, Chris Martin did it first. Uh, Coldplay is a, you know, obviously huge global act. They get 80,000 people on. But John actually got to kind of almost draft off of Chris. Um, and, you know, the fact that Chris brought in the press, John went on the next day and it just exploded. 120,000 people. Chris E. Teigen was on with him. Their daughter Luna was on with him. It was just a great hour of entertainment you know, in any platform. And John is great. He can do that. You know, Charlie Puth went on and did it. And Charlie, you know, he really is one of the greatest musicians working right now. Are um, you guys working about, are you guys working with Charlie Puth now? Or Yeah. So um, we just started working with him a few weeks ago. There haven't been any formal announcements, um, but uh, we just started working with him. And so we kind of guided that. Once Global Citizen came to us about John, we do a lot of work with Global Citizen. John hosted their UK show last year when there were still shows. So global, they came right to him to be one of the first ones. We recommended Charlie Puth, Lindsey Sterling, Rufus Wainwright, who we don't manage, but is a good friend of ours. And we booked all of them also. Um, Charlie went on, played to 20,000 people, um, which by the way is bigger than an arena show. Um, and are you charging for these shows or are they free? No, no, no. So philosophically, I'll get back to your, to your question in a second. Philosophically, I feel that no artist should be profiting directly from their fans right now if they're an established artist. Nobody on the level of Lindsey Sterling, Charlie Puth, John Legend should be profiting from their fans. The only places we're still earning money for our artists is brand integrations. If a brand comes to us and wants us to do something, we will consider it if it feels right, if it feels authentic. And those brand integrations during the COVID-19 crisis almost 100%, if not 100%, come with some charitable donation. Regular course of business. So anybody, obviously the streaming services are still up and running. iTunes sales are still up and running. To some degree, Amazon sales are still running, though they're not going to deliver till May, April or May. 
um, goes, that revenue is okay. Obviously publishing, sync, all those things are still open. And then, you know, merch, things like that. Any, anything where people are choosing to go spend money, we're okay with. Right. We are not charging for anything though from the audiences. Developing acts, it's the best time ever. You know, if you're, if you're a band, if you're a band that like has a small road crew, tours in a van, tours in a, a one bus tour kind of thing where like your livelihood is this. Like, you know, I'm talking those acts, I'm talking those are global 4,000, 5,000 seat acts who have a good, you know, a good war chest to make it through a struggle like this. We're, we're paying, we are also, you know, prioritizing paying our crews. You know, uh, we had a two week tour in South America. We had to cancel for Lindsey Sterling. Their crew got paid uh, through that. You know, we're, we're prioritizing taking care of our people, but artists are not, it's a hard time. You Friends know, at work is also the, a very socially, uh, you guys focus on social impact as well. Exactly. Right? And, and yeah. taking care of exactly. your own, taking care of others that are associated mm-hmm. to you. And that's something that I really respect about Friends at Work. Mm-hmm. But I mean, let's be clear. Yesterday, whoa, yesterday we reported America reported the numbers. America just broke its own record um, for unemployment filings uh, by, uh, I think, a magnitude of 500% over wow. the last time. It was, I think it was 3.3 million. The last record was in the 80, the 80s recession, like the 1986 recession, I think it was, or 88. Yeah. Um, and it was uh, 650,000. So 3.3 million, over 3 million people filed for unemployment this week. So we are not going out to our fans and asking for money. Uh, however, you know, that's where Foundy comes in a little bit. The developing act side, the, the independent artist, the working artist, we definitely want to support them in making money, you know, going and doing merch sales. And so Foundy is really sure. focused on And I on saw that. The, Foundy, the Foundy has opened a lot of its resources now for free to a lot of artists so that they can use your tool they can, they can monitor their data, they can monitor mm-hmm. engagement, and that they're able to actually make use of this crisis, right? And to yeah. find some sort of a silver lining. So for example, some of the things that we've done at Foundy, first of all, the platform has always been free, but it's been invite only. So now it's no invite needed. Anybody can log in and get an account right away. Uh, a couple of other additions include... Um, we added a PayPal button directly to our multi-store page. So all URL shorteners have some form of a remarketing multi-store page. So that's a page where you can put, you know, embed a YouTube video, put a Spotify link, an iTunes link, an Amazon link. So you put, promote your album and they let their fans choose where they want to go. We've now added a PayPal link to that. So you can click and get direct donations uh, like a tip jar. And we've now added a, pay, a Patreon link. So we have a direct link to Patreon. So, you know, if you're an independent artist, you want to launch your Patreon, right? And get just your fan. Let's say you have a hundred fans and they all want to give you 10 bucks a month. All of a sudden it's a thousand dollars a month that you're making for making bedroom content for whatever you do. You know, so if you have a, and I was talking with some artists here in Montreal or just across Canada that, you know, I, I won't say that I necessarily work with, but like people that I just talk to, right. Or, mm-hmm. you know, as somebody that works, in the music industry and has some experience with live performance and a little bit with artist development, you know, I try to provide a little bit of guidance to whoever comes my way. And one of the, one of the tidbits that just kind of popped into my head is what if an artist now, 
you know, if you're a singer songwriter, you play guitar and you sing, you can take a rendition of your own song, strip it down and just play a, a, a small live performance to Facebook or to Instagram. But instead of actually having the performance, you could do it as like a tutorial video saying, you know, mm -hmm. I want to take this song, strip it down, make it acoustic and teach it to my fans so that they can play it at home and enjoy it and consume in a different way. So they could learn alongside me. Okay. This is, these are the five chords that I would use in this song and how I would mm -hmm. play it and how I would sing it. And, you know, that's a great way to get engagement, especially if you're a small independent artist who's trying to make light of this situation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're, we're trying to, you know, just think of ways to support the independent artist in hopes that it's good karma, you know? So you've been in the music business now some 15 plus years, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I see you started in LA and you got your start, so it seems, working with Mick Fleetwood. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you've held various roles in marketing. I, I'm curious, uh, you know, I'd like to know what, how would you summarize your skill set? So back to, I don't know, back to my earlier anecdote about where my career came from. So I graduated in 2005. The industry looks nothing like it does now. It looks nothing like it did 10 years before that. There's, everything is up in the air. Nobody knows. But there's still a major label system that's trying to hold on an agency system is trying to hold on, a management infrastructure is trying to hold on. All the old language is still there, but no one knows how to work in it. And we hadn't really gotten to the social media revolution yet. So the way I manifest, manifested my career through that was first, I took the first job that was offered me. Um, a guy- Did you know who, this in 2005 uh, that you said, you know what, there's no. going to be a social media revolution? No idea. No idea. So really, I took the first job that was offered me. I just talked to my wife about this the other day. She's like, why did you take that job? That guy was so weird. Not this me. Saber? Yeah. So Saber Entertainment was uh, run by this guy, Jonathan Todd, who is a really, he is a marketing and sales genius. Um, we are Facebook friends. So if he sees this, I, I hope he knows that he, he taught me so much. But he wasn't really in the core music industry, nor did he really want to be. Mm -hmm. He kind of wanted to apply his marketing and sales skills to an industry that was losing revenue streams. He was smart enough to say the industry is losing revenue streams. You know, we're kind of, I think it was like six years after the Moby Play album uh, where it became like, you know, it's okay to do brand deals. It's okay to sync everything. It's okay to like align with brands. It's not selling out. We were like six or seven years after that. And so Mick Fleetwood was in a world where Fleetwood Mac had, essentially broken up. They were not getting back together then. It was right. 2006 to 2008. Say You Will was a moderate hit. It was as big of a hit as an arena band could be, but they were missing Christine. It wasn't a big album for them. Um, Warner wasn't really kind of like feeling it, but Mick was still a celebrity. You know, he's still a big name, still a big guy, six foot six. Um, you know, he was only 60 years old. He had tons of energy and things to do. He was really passionate about wine. So my boss, Jonathan, had started a wine label for, for Mick. Um, and we honestly, we sold that wine. And it was a lot of personal appearances. And what I would do, you know, it was a, a four-person team, really. The, the, so, me so and my boss, Jonathan. I just want to interrupt for a second. So most of your job there at Sabre over the, you were there for some three years, right? Yeah. So most of your job there, was it more focused on wine or on music? More on marketing and celebrity branding. And one of the projects was a wine label. Um, we also managed a blues artist out of the Pacific Northwest called Too Slim, Too Slim and the Tail Draggers. We produced records for them. Um, we, uh, we had a lot of clients. We had a, a record label that was distributed by Red doing new age music. We had music industry adjacent stuff, but not like 
core mainstream music industry. But what it allowed me to do, because the team was so small, I mean, the team at Sabre ranged from about two to five. The team on the wine label was about four or five people, depending on who we had hired at different times. I was the only core through line with my boss, Jonathan, for those three years until the financial crisis. And I did everything. I did online marketing, publicity, radio promotion. I booked Mick on radio interviews on K-Earth 101 to promote his wine personal appearances. Like I was 23 years old calling radio stations. I had no clue what I was doing. I just did it. learn just by doing it. Yeah. I was writing press releases because we wouldn't hire a publicist. We would, you know, do all these things that were kind of above my station just to get it done. And like, no question. I gave my whole life to that job. I spent, you know, one weekend a month for 14 months on the road with McFleetwood, uh, doing over 70 personal appearances, selling over $2 million worth of wine in Costco and Gelson's and all over California, Nevada, Hawaii, all over the place. We would be in hotel rooms. We did public speaking gigs, you know, for farmer's insurance, for all, we went to the Bahamas. We had to go from San Francisco to the Bahamas in 24 hours to did do a speech. Did you set all of this up or was it? wine personal appearances I did a hundred almost a hundred percent of we would sell the wine my boss Jonathan would sell the wine into a Costco uh, through the wine buyer and through our wine distributor and then we would organize personal with a promise of certain personal appearances how and then we would get a meeting with Costco I've heard you know I have some real hard. friends whose parents who've had meetings with Costco and have, and have some distribution deals but you know Walmart and Costco it takes years to get a meeting with them it was a long time ago. It was a lot of using celebrity and finding the right person. And the other thing about Costco is um, it's not a great place to build a business. It's a great place to make money uh, because you can kind of work with the margin. So if you're exclusive to them, you can kind of sell quality stuff at a better profit margin for you and still have the perceived value because they don't mark things up as much, but it's not a great place to build a business, which is actually the segue into the fact that 2008 financial crisis hit the wine label didn't really latch on. It kind of sold a lot, but it wasn't like reselling or taking. So it was kind of time to move on. So I moved on in 2008. And at that point, I helped a friend named Alexis Jones build, launch her first website. Uh, she actually founded her first nonprofit called I Am That Girl, which still exists today. Um, I helped her kind of develop that idea. And I kind of taught me, I taught myself HTML code in college. Uh, just promoting my own bands and managing my own bands and email marketing uh, through that. Um, working with our manager at the time, a guy named Seth, who doesn't even work in the music industry anymore. And then 2008 rolled around. I was just, you know, figuring it out, helping friends build websites, doing music marketing, taking what I learned at Sabre and trying to put it to work. And I got a job writing for a blog at 10th Street Entertainment. Alan Kovac, the famous manager, still manages Motley Crue had this idea of, you know, before the social media revolution, this is when MySpace was the biggest thing in the world and Facebook hadn't overtaken it yet. Facebook was just starting to open up and creep up on MySpace. And he had this idea of communities, of people gathering around communities. So we, were, we built a rock community called The Rock Vine. That was his baby and concept. Unfortunately, the company that was hosting it went under uh, in the financial crisis. Um, and that company was called Uber, believe it or not. Uh, it was an early version of WordPress and Zing and Ning and like all these like, you know, website hosting platforms and, or Squarespace. But the world um, that wasn't had, ready for it yet. The world was not ready for it. It went under. So, but in, I had been at the company for three months and they kind of, I had been integrated into the marketing projects and things like that. So instead of letting me go, they would put me into the new media department. And new media at the time is what we now call digital strategy, digital marketing. At the right. time, it was mostly online publicity. And again, I had had publicity experience from working and, with And 10th Street Entertainment, you, you guys worked with like Papa Roach and Buck Cherry, right? Mm-hmm. 
I'm pretty sure that one of my first slow dances in high school was to, with their song "Sorry." Sorry, yeah, yeah. huge hit. <laughs> um, yeah, everybody remembers "Crazy Bitch" and uh, and um, "Sorry" was their big breakout. Just like just like yeah. on Jet, Jet, all you're gonna be my girl was their breakout. But look what you've done is their is like their. Yeah, but I was always a big fan of "Cold Hard Bitch." <laughs> "Cold Hard Bitch" is a good song, but we managed Jet at the time. Yeah, so that at that time the roster was Motley Crue, Papa Roach, Buck Cherry, Jet, Blondie. So in that time, uh, this kind of goes back into digital marketing history. So I was doing digital publicity, and Alan had this idea, which turned out to be correct of artists monetizing their own content through advertising. He was just about four years early. He wanted to do that in 2008. And it wasn't until 2012 when um, YouTube opened up Content ID and their partner channels that artists could monetize their own content. So we were a little early in that. And I really thought direct-to-consumer was going to be the future. So this company, Topspin, had just come around that let you build a kind of early version of Shopify, Kickstarter. You could build your own web stores uh, if you knew HTML code. Alan and I kind of didn't see eye to eye on exactly how that was going to go. He was ahead of his time. I was kind of more in the moment, but also put too much stock in direct-to-consumer. And I ran a couple direct-to-consumer campaigns for 10th Street. Alan really wanted to focus on advertising revenue. I didn't really believe in that on the artist side. So when Concord opened up a position focused on direct-to-consumer, I got hired there to manage their direct-to-consumer department. I'm curious to know, so I want to kind of focus on a little bit of the hustle behind the business and how how you get started. So, you know, like you said, every decade or so, the music business is never how it was in the previous decade. I want to ask you something that's consistent now. Let's say I'm sure you've had interns over the years, you've had assistants. And what are some qualities that you would be looking for somebody who is coming out of school or coming either out of high school or with any sort of a background trying to Mm -hmm. make a name for themselves in the music business? Uh, There's two. There's exactly two. Resourcefulness is number one. The way I describe resourcefulness is there's no such thing as a stupid question, but don't ask a question you could have answered yourself. Google is your friend. You can always find an answer to almost anything in the world, but if you can't, it will always be a smart question. Never be afraid to ask questions, but always do your due diligence first. You will always seem smarter. The other is to have a philosophy about what really matters. And that is a matter of not following fads. Be careful of fads and focus on trends and focus on evergreen things. What I mean by trends and evergreen things, Snapchat in 2014 was a fad. Owning your audience and creating great content for your audience is evergreen and or a trend. Now, you could call it a little of both. Making great content is always evergreen. But we live in a world, the greatest change from the pre-internet era to today is the ownership of your audience. The fact that you can now own the distribution mechanism for content or think about that distribution mechanism. Any specific distribution mechanism for content, whether it be Snapchat, Instagram Stories, IGTV, Instagram Live, Facebook Live, TikTok, whatever it is, at any given moment, the hottest thing is always, almost always going to be a fad. But if you always start with what content am I going to create and how am I going to distribute that content once it's created, you're never going to fall victim to that. So every single one of you, 
every single person listening to this podcast, if you are getting started in your career, there will be a time when a boss, someone will ask you, how do we make this go viral? Someone will ask you, how do we get this on platform X? How do we guarantee this goes viral on platform X? Today, it would be TikTok. Tomorrow, I can't tell you what it's going to be. In 2014, it would have been Snapchat. That is impossible. <laughs> you have to see the content first. So there are trends in content. Now, if it is a silly dance, yeah, TikTok might be the right answer for that. But if it's a 10-minute inter interview, well, that makes more sense on YouTube. Right. You know, and even though YouTube is not a sexy fad anymore, you know, those, those are the ways to really think about that. Think of the content first and then how it's being distributed. Never listen to how do we make this go viral on X platform will never be a plan. That is not a strategy. Jeremy, that's amazing advice for everybody listening out there today. I really hope that they take that advice to heart. I actually have a hard stop at three to see it now. So uh, okay. just, just came up. I have to, I have to jump on the phone with John legend at three <laughs> name drop, but, um, we have to walk them through a thing we're doing tomorrow. I don't want to keep you longer than I need to. Uh, you've shared so much amazing advice. And thank you so much for making time in your busy schedule, even though you're in quarantine. I know that you're slammed. Take it easy. Thank you, YouTube. So that's the interview. Just wanted to say thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. If we mentioned something you liked that stood out to you, or if you just learned something new, we want to hear about it. Please leave us a review on Apple or any of our other socials. Take care, stay safe, and have a wonderful day.